0: Like now it's, I, I run everything on luffs and I don't put anything out that's like like ne- negative five luffs minimum. It's like kind of where I release music at. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right around negative five luffs is kind of a, about my, my minimum.
1: Hello and welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of theunts.com, and we're back. Took a good long hiatus for Bill to collect all the Phantasmagoria remixes, which we'll be telling you about very soon. Also, he had some festival plays, a studio to build, and lots of fun stuff that you'll learn in subsequent episodes. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Bassett, a senior lecturer at SAE, Australia's Masters of Creative Industries program, where he specializes in programming within the Mac software environment. He's a mastering engineer, an acoustician, a developer, and is involved with a number of music software companies. And uh, just this summer, he launched Frequia, which is technical ear training software, something Bill's just crazy about. So strap it down because this episode gets super nerdy. Everything's on the website, tutorials, sample packs, tour dates, and this podcast. Go to live.mrbillstunes.com for all things Mr. Bill. Kill Bill plays Field Trip in Chelsea, Iowa on Saturday, September 17th. Then Kill Bill hits Disco Pussy in Las Vegas on September 20th. Bill plays a special IDM set at Submersion Festival, taking place October 7th through 8th in Hamilton, New Jersey. And Kill Bill closes out October at Base Country in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on October 29th with Murata, Dion Timmer, Lucid, and more. Tickets at linktree slash Mr. Bill's Tunes. There you have it. Enjoy Bill's chat with Dr. Mark Bassett.
0: all right man yeah hey thanks for doing this it's um yeah been a long time since i've since i've chatted with you been i think i can't even remember what year i finished at sae i believe it was um maybe 2010 so it's been since yep yeah i was thinking it's over a over a decade surely
2: i i'd moved to dubai in 2012 so it had to be before then
0: right yeah how was dubai
2: uh Interesting. Um, Big learning curve, uh, a lot of fun, hard to leave. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of um, expats don't actually get out of there, Mm. get addicted to no tax and sorry, (laughs) no income tax anyway, and um, find it difficult to come back. But yeah, I did two years and then moved back to Byron.
0: Okay, Uh, cool. Um, And you were like running the SAE out there? uh,
2: Yeah, it was the same as Sydney. So I was the academic coordinator in Sydney and then the same in Dubai and then the same in Byron and did a year in Byron. And then they sent me to San Fran for a year to do some project management stuff. And that was 2016. And that's when I started this gig. So I'm still in the same role since 2016.
0: Gotcha. You're working at the um, the SAE in San Francisco, you said?
2: Yeah. Uh, f- all of 2016, basically, as a project manager developing curriculum for um, the new degrees and associate degrees back then. And then while I was there, I um, started this role.
0: Okay, so you probably know Ivo Ivanov, yeah?
2: I don't, no. Okay,
0: so was he, he used involved
2: to, in expression.
0: Yeah, he used to run it. Um, he was one of the first. Actually, it was in 2012, I think. It was like the, one of the first tours I did of America. Once I like got out of SAE, I basically started releasing music and then touring. Um, and yeah, one of the first people I met in San Francisco was him. And he he now runs a plug-in company called Glitch Machines. He works with like Richard Devine and stuff like that.
2: Right. Yeah, I think Expression closed, um, and SAE purchased them after they'd closed, um, mm. kind of like a lifeline, and then and then ran them um, for a while. Um, but no, I don't. I I know the name. I I never met him. I never saw him on campus or anything like that.
0: Right, yeah. The other two people I know there who I believe they worked at Expression was um, Josh Hinden from Twisted Tools, and who was the other person I knew there? Um, uh, Brian Trifonic, yeah, Trifon. Brian Trifon, who has this company now called Finishing Move. I think that they, they wrote all the music for like Halo and stuff.
2: It's a great company name. I don't know either of
0: those guys. I definitely remember those names, though. If I did, so nice, um, cool, man. Yeah. So uh, wait. So you're currently at um, working at SAE in Sydney now. Uh,
2: technically, I'm based in Byron Bay, but I live in my hometown in Port Macquarie. Um, oh, cool. Halfway between Sydney and Byron, so I was one of the first. Well, I think it was the first SAE employee to work 100% remotely. Because all of my, um, all my contacts at work, everyone I work with is in another country, essentially. So remote hmm. doesn't make a huge difference uh, to me. I do a lot of weekends and strange hours.
0: Um, right. And I imagine but- at, at this point, like everyone's pretty um, pretty used to working remote after the pandemic and stuff, right?
2: Yeah, it, it depends if you're talking about admin or teaching, but um, yes, it's been difficult. Um, a lot of our campuses have struggled uh, overseas to convince students to come back to campus. Um, they've had a taste of remote and <laughs> they want it to continue no matter what, um, uh, which is difficult for um, for programs like audio where there's specialist equipment that we want them to get their hands on, but different for yeah. animation
0: and games perhaps. Right. Yeah, I would have honestly kind of liked that for a lot of the classes I was doing when I was at SE. I was living out at Windsor and I was studying in Sydney. So the train ride was about an hour and a half uh, each way. So I was doing three hours of train four or five times a week. So if I had a class at 9 a.m., I had to wake my ass up at 5.30 a.m. and get on a 6 a.m. train. Or something like that, and then on and my I'm fucking horrible at sleeping. I've always like, it's not like I'm an insomniac. I'm I'm just bad at going to bed. Like I'm I'm, just, I'm bad <laughs> at like I'm bad at staying up and working and like getting you know and being like oh fuck it's three a.m. I got to go to sleep. And then you know so I was like I was just fucking wrecked the entire time I was doing SAE basically.
2: I remember you had to travel a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I remember not a lot about every student,
0: but I remember you had to travel a lot. Yeah, to get there. Yeah, it was horrible, <laughs> um, but worth it. Uh, yeah, so I, I was reading on your website that um, you rebuilt at least one, but possibly more mixing consoles in a virtual environment for the sake of students being able to like kind of understand them and operate them um, virtually, uh, how, how'd that work? Cause like, again, that would have been an amazing thing to have when I was going to TSE cause I remember trying to get like studio time back then I was pain in the ass. Yeah.
2: It started back then. It started when you were at SAE in kind of 2009, 2010. I started using Max MSP software, which is just called Max now. Um, I was forced to use it as part of my master's research. We built um, listening test interfaces like compare A to B and adjust this. That interface um, was built in Max at um, Sydney Uni, so I had to learn how to use Max to do those. To build those experiments, and then I started messing around with it and developing just little interactive—you wouldn't even call them apps—just little interactive bits of software to demonstrate things like phase cancellation and just the the, the principles of sound and and signal processing. Um, and nothing was uh, nothing I made back then was anything close to to the console I developed recently, but. I, did a, I made a prototype in, I think it was 20, 2018, 2019, little Behringer desk. I just wanted to take a single photo of a console, like a high-res photo, and then edit it, cut out all the dials, cut out all the switches, <laughs> or just extract them, and then paste them back in in Max and program it to work. So the the larger consoles you're talking about, there was the Audient was released in October 2020, Audient ASP 4816 Simulator. Um, so, we contacted Audient and they were really helpful and really excited about the idea and sent us some some high res photos. You need quite specific photos of the console, you know, taken at quite a distance with a zoom lens to get rid of any perspective and that kind of thing. Um, Audient were nice enough to take every single dial and fader off the ASP4816 and photograph it without dials or faders, um, which yeah. saves me a lot of work. But essentially you just take a photo of a console and then in photoshop or whatever you extract a dial um, a single image of each different colored dial each fader um, each switch in the on and off state each light in the on and off state Um, and then for the dials i use software called Knobman at the time which (laughs) rotates pngs or jpegs because if you get a jpeg of a dial with the with the indicator at vertical at 12 o'clock and then you rotate it in your graphic software, it just, it loses yes. quality because it's a JPEG, like it's compressed anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so knobman yep. kind of over, I think it oversamples it and then rotates it. So you take one image of a dial and knobman spits out 270 images, one for each degree of rotation. And then you import mm-hmm. that long horizontal PNG of 270 different image pictures into Max and then you can animate it as a knob um, so you you basically put a giant photo of the console in Max and then over that you put the knobs and they animate, they can turn and then you, put the, you generate two different image states for the switch, the on and the off in Photoshop and the light, the on and the off and then you put them into Max. So now you've got something that visually looks like a console that works but it doesn't do any audio processing. So then mm-hmm. you've got to kind of jump under the hood and do all the audio processing which was um, easier with a... Um, with a schematic of the console. Um, So the prototype I did in in sort of 2018, 2019 was just a virtual console and that's it, which was kind of limited in terms of its usage. But for the Audient and then the Mackie that came after, sorry, for the Audient and the Mackie that came after, I added in sort of additional learning and teaching materials. So interactive tutorials and... Um, a feature where if you hover your mouse over different sections of the console, it tells you what it does. Um, It was quite a challenge actually to get, to find a manufacturer who was interested in the idea of making a virtual simulation. I'd been contacting manufacturers since maybe 2017 and none of them were interested in what they saw as a product that was was competition to their physical console. So right, in their but that's mind, not why you're
0: building it, right? Like you're building it for educational purposes, not so not to sell it to somebody to be like, here's a virtual version of the console, so you don't have to buy the physical one.
2: No, and you would never mix a track on a virtual on the virtual console yeah. I made. You just use a door. Like right, it's, it's 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 not suitable. It's such a headache to do it that way. You can't right. record the, the sounds are, of them,
0: but yeah, and by the sounds it runs in like as a Max patch, right?
2: Yeah, it's a standalone Mac application. Um, mm. In Max, you can export anything you build as a standalone application. So, for example, mm. users that download the apps, they don't need to have Max on their machine. Um, it's and like a native runtime. And just spits it out
0: as a like a DMG
2: or. Yep, uh, it's a dot app, but you wrap it up oh. as a DMG. Um, it's a gotcha. it's a native runtime app that I think it contains a runtime version of Max in the app itself. But mm. the end story is that the user doesn't need Max to run it. Um, you just need a Mac. It doesn't work on mobile devices, not that you're gonna scroll across a console on your iPhone, but
0: Right. Okay. So so basically if like you're a student at SAE now, you just like have access to a repository somewhere and you can download this app to, to You don't learn.
2: need to be a student at SAE. It's it's publicly okay. and freely available. Um, we wanted to make it that way from day one. So you can go to the SAE Australia website and there's a download link for the Audient ASP4816 and the Mackie 1604 VLZ4 all you need is a mac mm. there's i mean they're SA branded there's an SA logo on them but anyone is free to use them download them use them as training mm.
0: materials at their school or or not Man, I love that colleges do this these days. Like, if you go to the Berkeley website, you can do like a full on jazz degree basically for free. And if you if you go to the MIT website, you can do like all the MIT courses for free. It's like it's insane, like the amount of uh, learning materials that are available from colleges these days. And then on top of that, you got YouTube these days, which is insane.
2: When I was in Dubai, I was looking at the MOOCs for
0: I can't remember what you. Know, I think it was MIT, and they
2: had footage of one of the first digital audio lectures. You know, the guy with the brown suit and the tie on the giant sliding chalkboards doing all the digital <laughs> audio theory and I just loved it. I couldn't believe we had access to that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like at this point you can basically get a college degree almost off um, just online if you have the drive to do it. I think a big part of it is um, uh, it's hard, I think, when you're starting out learning to know like where to focus your learning to begin with uh, so you can kind of, um, you know, pick up um, you know, things in a, in a linear fashion to where they actually make sense because there's a lot of information, I think, where like, you know, if you're trying to learn some crap about acoustics before you learn anything about like how the harmonic series works or something like that, it might be a little difficult.
2: Yeah, it's it's difficult to know what you don't know in terms of what's the assumed knowledge before this to make that kind of concept set and gel and then get you thinking about sort of higher order ideas, as you said, without those fundamentals, it's it's a challenge you'll get there it'll just take you a really long time
0: right yeah Um, before things start to like click together and yeah because yeah I find like once I got to sort of the not even the end of SAE it was like years and years after that it was like only then that shit sort of all started to click together and I was like oh this shit is actually really simple if you just like once you understand like a bunch of concepts and they all just sort of make sense together um that's
2: that's great to hear um i yeah i I remember the day when it all kind of clicked together and for me in terms of audio and just all of that theory learning about sine waves and phase and all that kind of stuff and it just one day it just kind of set and made sense and then everything that came after it made much more sense um Mm. in terms of just a real
0: foundational understanding and it's it hasn't left me since so Right, that's at the point I think where you can like actually read a book about like a piece of software or about a, a concept in audio, and, and it actually is is worth doing. I feel like when I first started studying, I was like, um, you know, reading some of the suggested books, and I was just like, man, this is like not at all helpful. It's like trying to read shit, and like there's a bunch of key terms I don't understand and stuff. It seems like a waste of time. Um, without, yeah, I think
2: like, a lot of people need to. We don't we don't really know when we're students that we all learn really differently and for some people reading a book is an absolutely fantastic way or for some people sitting through a three-hour lecture is a great way to learn and they Mm. um, they instantly start thinking about higher order concepts and extrapolating ideas just by passively receiving information and then other students there's no worse way to learn they need to learn by doing um, which you know everyone does but I think that was the difference when you're learning those, um, first sort of principles about sound theory and that type of thing. It, it's the application of them and thinking through problems. That's really where you learn, um, the relationships between all these different things and not just being told about them or reading about them. Um,
0: yeah. Um, so when, when I was at SAE, uh, one of the things that I don't know if it's changed or not was that um, like Pro Tools was kind of touted as the be all and end all DAW, and and a lot of the other DAWs like Fruity Loop Studio and, and Ableton Live were kind of looked at as like toys, and they weren't looked at as kind of like serious pieces of software. Is that still the case there, or is it kind of? No, uh, I think
2: the term I think the term they use is um, door agnostic. Um, it's okay. not only the Pro Tools club. Um, and for a lot of the the student projects that you work on we don't we don't care what you'd use to make it It, it's it's not relevant Mm -hmm. um and the modules are certainly less if at all pro tools focused um i think some of the earlier ones might have even been named around pro tools or been linked directly to a pro Tools certification but um these days it's door agnostic the the relevance isn't isn't there um it's it's up to the student
0: yeah, when I was there, I was expected to own a fucking little Mbox Mini so I could use Pro Tools. And I, I thought it was the most cumbersome program for Was that the I little it. blue one? Yeah, it was like this little shitty yeah. fucking thing. And now used there's to have just all these,
2: piles of them in a cupboard somewhere. There's just thousands yeah. of Mbox minis lying around the world.
0: Yeah, the best thing I ever got out of it was like a weird buffer error thing. It was just making a bunch of weird noise and I just sampled it. And sampled it. Yep. You know, <laughs> Yeah, um, I remember perfect. plugging those things in and them
2: not not syncing properly. Yeah, yeah, it's, but, yeah, things have changed a, a lot, and not just at SAE in terms of education. the The approach is, you know, the, the kind of standard this these days is project based learning and holistic assessment. I mean, SAE Australia doesn't even have lectures anymore, and there's mm. no exams. It's it's a different it's a different world um, compared to what it was sort of at, over a decade ago. A lot of the old people that were lecturing back then are still with us and a lot of them
0: aren't. Um, mm. So, Yeah, is Brani and Craig still at, at SAE in Sydney? Uh, I think Brani is. I think Craig's moved on. But nice. again, I
2: don't I yeah. don't actually work in Australia, which is the strange thing. I mean, oh, gotcha. I'm not involved with SAE Australia uh, at all. I just kind of live here and work in a strange part of the business um, that deals with international campuses. But um, having said that, I do teach in their master's program once a year. Um, coincidentally I teach Max programming in Max for audio so that's handy.
0: Nice yeah I got into Max a little bit because um, I'm an Ableton user and, and Max is now pretty integrated with Ableton uh, using Max for live so yep. basically you can like just open like a little plug-in type thing just as it would be an audio effect or MIDI effect and then it just has like a two in two out and two-out, two yeah, playground and you can just do whatever you want within that playground um, it's funny I, I was a uh, dating a a JavaScript developer for a while. And she was like, I want to, do you know about Splitter? It's uh, this thing that was developed by, so so it's this thing that was developed by Deezer. uh, And I think it's using, I don't know, like DMux or something like that. And basically it's like one of those STEM separation softwares. So you are able to like feed a, right. a WAV file into it, and it spits out four files like drums, other vocals, wow. and so something like that. And it works pretty well. And she was like, "Oh, I want to use Splitter, but um, have it just available as like a little plugin uh, in in Ableton." But she didn't know how to use Max, but she was really good at JavaScript because she was a programmer. So she basically just used the Node.js object. So basically, yep. the, the plugin was just two in, two out, with a Node.js object in the middle. It just goes in, runs a bunch of JavaScript, and then goes out. Brilliant.
2: Yeah. There's, there's people that, I mean, Max, even looking at the consoles that I developed, there's not a line of code in any of it. Mm. Um, but there's people that use Max and and just strictly code in it. And then there's people that live in combinations of both worlds. Um, Mm. it's, it's quite accessible in terms of getting a prototype up and running quickly, but, um, yeah, I've, I've helped people develop a few things in, um,
0: Max for live, um, as you said, with the two in and two out, it's simple. Mm. Um, yeah, have you messed around at all with like uh, the Juice framework or, or any C plus stuff? Um, no, is the short answer. Um,
2: Juice is an integral part of Max and part of the the software that I develop, but I don't have any direct involvement with it. It's all in, it's all done for me in the in the back end. Um, mm. But no, I, I intentionally don't dabble in those worlds because I don't need to at this stage. But now I've said yeah. that publicly, I'm sure I'm going to have to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, every time I try to get into something coding based or you know um, try to develop my live show more by getting into something like Blender or Unreal yeah. or some, some shit like that, I'm like, this is just going to – I'm going to write less music because of this. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I try to not. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the, the piece of software that you built because I, I actually have a lot of questions about it. Um, so I, I guess I'll just give people a quick rundown of what I see it to be as a user. Um, so it's called Frequia, and it seems like the, the idea is you install an app that's, that currently just runs on Mac. It's able to hijack your Spotify input or title input or whatever, or your system audio input. Um, and then it basically has three buttons on it, question, response, and answer or something like that. And basically you hit question, it applies a EQ setting to the to the input that you're listening to. So whatever you're listening to, Spotify, you hit question. It applies an EQ setting to it. You can't see what that EQ setting is, Then you have to guess what it is. And then you hit. That's my response. That's what I think it is. Um, then it tells you if you're correct or not. And you have like some difficulty settings. I believe easy is just frequency. Uh, medium is like frequency and and how much of that frequency like, is it less of it or more of it? And then hard mode is like frequency, how much of it there is, and then the quality factor of it. Um, is, that, is that basically uh, correct? Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's called, I guess you would call the category of software a technical ear training. Um, so it's a technical ear training software that focuses on equalization. There's, there's technically training software that's compression and reverb identification and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a standalone app um, for a Mac only at this stage. Um, you can also drag in your own audio files as well if you don't want to hijack a, a system uh, input. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it essentially presents random, um, in the beginning anyway, random questions where here's the flat signal, here's the EQ'd signal, um, here's your guess. So your role is, it depends on the mode, but in the, in the matching mode, your role is just to match the question to your response. Um, there's other modes where you need to remove the EQ that's been applied. Um, and then for many of these modes there's um, uh, a from memory option so matching from memory here's the bypassed here's the EQ'd you can never hear either of those again now you mm-hmm. need to match it from your memory so you can't jump back to the EQ'd version and, <laughs> and, and do that
0: um, that's actually then useful because. sorry I was going to say that's actually um, useful because if you're like soloing shit all the time in a session it's kind of good to have that sort of memory right yeah, and there's a there's a mode called uh, absolute identification
2: which you never get to hear your response. So mm. here's the bypassed, here's the eq'd. Set the settings so they match what
0: eq has been applied, but you're not going to hear your settings. Right. Um, yeah, because it's kind of almost. Yeah, totally. Because if you're a being, it's like your brain is incredibly good at playing spot the difference. So it's
2: yeah. Yeah, 100%. So it gets more difficult when you've got to do that via memory. It gets more difficult when you've got to remove um, the EQ that's been applied as opposed to strictly match it. Um, you can choose just to train on frequencies, um, just to train on gain, just to train on Q, or any of, combination of any of those, boosts only, cuts only, boosts and cuts. And then you can control how difficult it is, meaning how many frequency options sort of uh, we start at. Um, two octave octave or one third octave depending on how difficult you want to make it so the hardest mm. you could make it would be doing third octave frequencies um one db gain increments boost and cuts um and a range of 12 different q values and then you set that to the absolute identification mode and it's very very
0: difficult to do um, right that's like mastering engineer shit right it's like-
2: yeah, one of the first people that purchased it was a mastering engineer over in Germany who said, you need to do 0.1 dB increments because this is too easy. Um,
0: Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I
2: almost wanted to ask him to record his screen <laughs> and send it to me.
0: Um, yeah, I was like, who the fuck is hearing that shit?
2: And you can hide the... When you adjust the controls, you'll see you'll see the graph of the EQ change. You can hide that if you don't want to stare at EQ curves. But right. it, it stores your performance over time. So... After a while, after a couple of sessions, you can engage the adaptive training mode and it will analyze your performance to date. And to put it simply, give you less of the questions you've got correct and give you more of mm-hmm. the questions you've got wrong. Right, um, so
0: you're like actually getting better at the shit you're bad at. And-
2: yeah, instead of just presenting you 1K if you keep getting that boost correct, it, it will just present right. that less and less and less and then the wrong ones more and more until that sort of balances out. Mm-hmm. Um, the other unique feature about it, which was really the focus of my PhD is the ability to turn off audio when you're sweeping throughout the spectrum. So there's kind of two different schools of thought of how you should learn to use an EQ. One of them is that you do a narrow boost and then you sweep it around until you find what you want and then you make an adjustment. And then the other approach is you don't do that. You guess what you want in terms of frequency. You guess what you want in terms of gain and then you engage it and see if you're correct if you weren't you immediately disengage it and then guess again and you don't expose yourself to the sweeping throughout the spectrum Mm. so frequently has a button where when you adjust the control if you turn sweeping off it will mute the output if you're in the middle of any type of adjustment and then only when you let go of the controls it'll play audio back for you
0: Mm. Um, do you think there's a problem with the eq sweeping method
2: uh, my PhD will tell you there's no empirical evidence to support either method. Okay, um, yeah. The argument is that it exposes you to a whole lot of wrong frequencies, but um, mm. I think if you asked audio engineers how they learnt, they either won't remember or they'll tell you they just used a console in the studio or a door and and eventually learnt. N- not a lot of people actually remember the specific method or even if they used one, but um, me personally, it would have been a mix of both. Um, it's more intuitive, I think, to sweep around when you're, when you're learning. Um, but I think a combination of both is still used. I'm pretty accurate with my EQing these days, but I'm still going to maybe not land on exactly where I need it and need to tweak it once I'm there. And I'm certainly not going to disengage the EQ while I make fine adjustments and then re-engage it again. So I don't expose my ears to these supposedly wrong frequencies, but, um, I, I read about it in a, in a book by Michael Stavro called Mixing With Your Mind where he, he was adamant that you do not sweep under any circumstances throughout the spectrum because hmm. in his mind, it's the equivalent to a pianist playing all the different notes up the piano until they find the right one. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that's a great analogy, but his it's book also insp-
0: like fine is if you're listening to jazz or whatever, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. His his, his book inspired me to, to do research into this because there wasn't any and just investigate those two different modes of... Um, how to how to train a student to use an EQ. So I built an ear training program where half the participants could sweep throughout the spectrum when using the ear training program and half of them couldn't. And then you need to establish, well, how do you know if the ear training program worked? Like what performance are you measuring? So I had to develop these tests of sensitivity. So our, our theory was that when you train on an ear training program, you will get better at making... You'll become more sensitive to adjustments in in timbre, essentially. Um, if you compared your performance at the beginning to the end, that's mm. that was the theory that was that we were running with. So we developed ser- uh, several tests of sensitivity to timbre and tested students before they did the training and then at the end uh, to see if there was any difference. And then compared the sweeping group versus the non sweeping group. To compare between those two groups to see was there any difference in improvement in sensitivity to timbre between the group that was allowed to sweep and the group that wasn't, uh, and the answer was there there wasn't any difference between those two. So there's certainly no experimental evidence out there that one is better than the other. Uh, there's lots of um, lots of people who have really strong opinions either way in in audio engineering texts and literature, but there's really no evidence behind it.
0: Wouldn't the same argument be that um, listening to incredibly harmonically rich music be a, a, like a, applying a similar type of damage to your psyche or your like your um, your perception of frequencies versus listening to very harmonically not like just you know uh, for let's say you're listening to some weird fucking noise music that's just like a few sine waves at like yep. you know, give them frequencies. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting argument. It, it sounds that- like. Yeah, it sounds like the argument is like exposure yes. to any frequency other than the one that it sounds like you want to isolate in this one particular mixing exercise that you're doing or, or this, this mix done or master whatever it is that you're doing is detrimental.
2: Yes, that's the argument. And it, it's certainly not ridiculous. an argument around efficiency because you know, sweeping right. is faster for... Oh, for well, I mean, at this point teams.
0: you have like... Right. Or, I mean, at this point, like the technology is insane. Like, you just put soothe on it and just turn the depth control up, and it just, it'll basically remove resonances until you have a completely flat spectrum. So it's like, yeah, why well, not just well, do that?
2: Now we're talking about whether or not it's relevant to have those skills, I guess. But, um, right. There's, there's passionate, um, stances around which, which of those two sweep or non sweep <laughs> methods are appropriate and they're they're most likely linked to how the person learned themselves but if the goal is to train students to develop um, an internal long-term memory for the sound of certain frequencies what's the most efficient way we can do that and mm. th- that's what we were interested in looking in but we didn't find any difference between whether you sweep around or whether you make an educated guess and then engage it and then turn it off if you're wrong and try again so yeah there's no evidence of the quote-unquote um, detrimental damage of exposing yourself to this range of frequencies while sweeping
0: yeah i mean that sounds like it would be a sad life if you like truly believed in that and you're like i can't go outside basically because that will expose me to all sorts of frequencies
2: yeah it doesn't it doesn't add up because you you would have been exposed to every frequency in the spectrum already anyway all the time and not even paying attention to it so i think it just seemed inefficient to people and that's where the critique came mm. from. But or maybe it seemed unprofessional and you that you should know what your frequencies are and you shouldn't you know, an engineer sweeping through the spectrum to find what they're after is a sign that they're unprofessional and they
0: need more training, which is just horseshit. Right. Essentially what they're saying is that you should just have insanely good relative pitch, I think, right? From the beginning. Because Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because um I mean you like As far as I know, you can't train absolute pitch. Like it's something that's just developed when you're, you know, in your early infant years, based on like when your brain is still in that state of like plasticity. I think um, it gets developed a lot in Asian countries because they have tonal languages. Uh, It also gets developed a lot around like jazz musicians and classical musicians or people whose parents were jazz and classical musicians and were playing them like very high information music with like tons of different keys and shit going on all the time. It seems like they're the people who who develop absolute pitch the most and it seems to me uh, from what I've seen that it's really hard to develop later in life. But I have um, a bunch of friends who have crazy relative pitch. Like I have one friend who's able to whistle, like he whistles a sweep. He goes like and he knows that top note that he can hit with a whistle is a c and then he just is able to really quickly figure out what what key a track is in or whatever he's doing wow um, from there
2: it'd be um, interesting to have that version in in the spectrum where you know if you've got um perfect pitch you know it's an a right in well the i spectrum. have a i have
0: a friend who who's like this as well he's like he he has absolute pitch and he's had a from a young age because his his parents were um you know jazz musicians and, and made him play piano from a young age and he's pretty much assimilated it to frequency recognition. It's really crazy. Like I'll be writing writing music. I've only been in the studio with him once, but I was in the studio with him for three weeks. And, um, yeah, he'll be listening to something. He's like, oh, that snare has too much like A sharp in it. And he just like knows whatever frequency that roughly is and is able to just remove it. And you're like, holy shit, I just like fixed the mix. I would would have taken me a while to figure out.
2: Because they, they know which A as well, right? They don't just know that it's an A. Right.
0: It's... Yeah, they know it's like what octave it is. And...
2: Yeah, because that would be frustrating in the studio where you where it's got too much of some multiple of 300 hertz. I can't tell you if it's 150, right. 300, <laughs> 6 or
0: 12, but it's 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 a multiple of that. Right, right. Yeah. How, how much of mixing and mastering do you think is like this technical ear training based stuff or, or this like, yeah, this, this technical kind of, um, approach versus, um, like a personal preference in these domains? Cause I quite often feel like, um, mix downs for me at least are almost like, um, like artistic choices most of the time rather than, and, and, I feel like the reason for that is because I I tried to take the other approach, kind of when I got out of uni, and then for a long time after that, I was like, oh no, mixdowns like have to be done this certain way. Like you can't, you can't throw like, uh," for instance, like these days I don't even use limiters, right? Like I throw uh, a clipper on my master and I just push gain into it, and it just chops the tops off like that, and and I like the sound of that. And that's something that took me like ten years or something to like. Undo knowledge of at university from people who are like you can't over compress shit and you can't clip shit and digital clipping's bad and like all this stuff um so yeah i don't know how much do you think is like an artistic preference or versus um versus the, like a technical sort of thing
2: you can do whatever you want and you know i agree with you there really shouldn't be or well, there aren't actually any rules around anything people are going to tell you things but whatever works for the mix and whatever works for the, the creative vision is what works. I think what's important is you need, whether it's technical or artistic, you need an ability to be able to discriminate between very small changes in sound. And mm. if you want to relate, if you have a, a vision in your head of what you want that sound to be like, that's that's in the artistic world. How do you translate that? How do you actually achieve it? You need to go into the technical world to do that so i think it's it's a combination of both but i think if you're a if you're a mastering engineer the approach is what makes the song work what works what serves the song ultimately it it's as simple as that we've we've had tracks leave leave the mastering studio i worked in that we didn't really touch they were absolutely fine as soon as the artist brought them in which is the ultimate compliment for the mixing engineer but a lot of clients um Certainly in those days, they wanted things done to their mixes. I mean, they're not, you know, we're not paying you to not touch our mix, even though that's the ultimate compliment for a mixing engineer. You know, it's the equivalent Mm. to going to the doctor and paying them whatever you pay them. And they say, you're fine. You're paying them for decades (laughs) of experience to make that judgment call. And it's the same with the master engineer. So there were clients that wanted wanted things done to their mix, damn it, because we're paying regardless of whether that was the appropriate appropriate choice. I sort of went down a tangent on that
0: one, but um, that does happen. Yeah, I suppose like at that point, um, you're almost just paying for a like a relief of anxiety maybe. Yeah. I feel like quite often before I put something out, I'm always like, fuck, I hope it's okay.
2: Especially in the bottom end, even really experienced um, mixing engineers that I had the pleasure of working with would just come in and go, How's the bottom end? That's all they care about because that's one of the hardest things to get right in in small rooms, especially from a monitoring perspective. So they knew the rest of it was Mm. fine. But that actually reminds me, I had a client come in one day who hid a 22 kilohertz sine wave tone. uh, Well, didn't hide it, just put it across one of his tracks (laughs) on one side, on the left hand Mm. side, just to see if I could hear it. Like as a test for the mastering engineer, and the VU meters just blew out. I I saw it before right. anything else. I didn't hear it, and right. I couldn't identify what this what was making this thing happen. Um, and then I asked him <laughs> about. It. He's like, "Yeah,
0: I put this tone in just to see if you could hear it, just to test you out." <laughs> Wouldn't you just see it? Like, I mean, one of the first things I'd do if I'm mastering a track is put like Pro Q or something on it, and it's just a spectrum. You just probably see that big spike, couldn't you?
2: Yeah, I think I was. Uh, we we have those spectrum. Analyze or had those spectrum analyzers in front of us, but um I, I noticed it on the VU meters first, and we just was looking around to try and because I thought it was something in the gear, so or something's misbehaving here. <laughs> I got to check a few things, and, yeah, because you blame blame yourself first, and then
0: right. eventually
2: find out that you're being tested.
0: And he was doing it just to like see if you would do anything to the file, or just to see if you could. He wanted to know if I could hear like that one.
2: frequency, if I could hear that high. Oh, gotcha.
0: Can anyone hear that? 22k that seems pretty I would bet money that it, that
2: someone can definitely. Okay. But interesting. I don't know what do you mean by hear? Can they yeah, Exactly.
0: At some point it's like at some at some point like you you're just hearing this the drivers of your speaker distort, right? Like cuz all there's I a like sensation whenever I start to do.
2: But is mm-hmm. that is that yeah. hearing quote unquote like if if you're turning it on and off and you have a physical awareness that there's a change how you know at what point is that hearing and what point that isn't? It's just you might be hearing your eardrums click, you might be hearing a pressure that's there and not there, but you're not actually hearing the tone itself. You just you're just
0: aware of a thing. Um mm. when you yeah, it's like kind of just sound pressure, right? So you're just hearing like a it's just a yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean a it's of of course, course it's technically of hearing, <laughs> but um are you actually hearing that frequency? Probably not. Mm. Are you um have you done much uh training with hearing the difference between uh, files of different bit depths, like 16-bit versus 24-bit and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, I, I, built, a, um, I built a little app um, that I'll share. It It's for A-Bing. So it's an ABX comparator. So there's sound A, sound B. Essentially, you load two different sounds, let's say 16-bit, 24-bit, And then you load it into the app and it will present sound A, sound B, and then sound X. And you have to choose whether sound X is the same as sound A or sound B. And it randomizes the presentation. It gives you 20 questions. And I think if you get 12 out of the 20 right, then that's a statistical difference that you can definitely hear the difference between the two things. The thing about it is that you have to match the loudness. Um, And loudness matching is a subjective exercise. So... If you're out by a small amount, you're going to be able to tell the difference between the two files quite easily when what you're identifying has nothing to do with bit depth. It's that your two right. files aren't matched in loudness.
0: Wait, so how, why is that difficult to match between a 16-bit and a 24-bit file? It's not difficult it for the-
2: you. If I get you to match, so you've got a 16-bit and a 24-bit file, and you, you need to match the loudness of these two things if we're going to do a listening test. And you personally match that loudness. That might not be the same loudness for me.
0: But why? Why wouldn't it be if, if both files were identical? The only difference was the bit depth. Oh, sorry, I'm not suggesting the,
2: like, that that bit depth makes the loudness different. For example, if you were comparing um, a boost on two different EQ plugins, for example, there might there might be a change in level. And before doing any listening test, you need to match the match the loudness of the two files you're presenting. But let's just say there was a difference between these two files and we need to have them the same loudness so we can compare them in a listening test. What I'm saying is that when you do that loudness adjustment and you make them identical to your hearing, they might not be identical to mine.
0: I'm still confused because if I just take, a, like, a, say, a 32-bit wave file, I put it in Ableton, I take like 16 bars of it, and then I render it out with the render settings saying 16-bit, and then I just render yep. it out again with the the settings saying 24-bit, they should just be the same. Just the file will be a different bit depth, right? Like in terms of volume, there should be no different. It should be the exact same file, just the bit depth of the files will be different. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm not suggesting that that rendering two different bit depths generates two files that are of different level, but let's just say we were comparing um, one plugin to another and you did an identical boost on both plugins and then... The you you exported the the output of that, and let's pretend there was a difference in loudness between those two files for whatever reason. Mm. Matching the loudness of those files is is tricky because it's a personal and subjective thing. So if you're trying to do mm. a listening test for a hundred people in your experiment, and you've needed to match the Pultec EQ versus the PSP EQ, you had to match that output in loudness, and you've done that. That loudness won't necessarily be matched for all of the participants in that experiment because it's a personal and subjective thing.
0: So is the only way then to um, to actually do that test accurately as a part of the experiment be the very first step you say to the person make these two things the same volume and then render out a hundred different files for every participant? Yep,
2: you're a natural born. two hundred different, natural different natural files, born right? researcher bill. That's exactly what you do. You get them mm-hmm. to match
0: the loudness. Yeah. Um, and gotcha. then you, then you start that did, experiment. Right. Did you run this experiment?
2: Um, I'm trying to think back to the ones that I did. Um, I think we got, th- there's another way to do it that's kind of accepted as, as accurate is getting a group of people to each do a loudness assessment or a matching of loudness of the two things before the experiment and then use an average of those um, adjustments for the actual experiment itself. Um we've certainly done that where we got um we matched the loudness of sound files as best as we could and then we presented them to people and asked them to make adjustments if needed if they were different loudnesses, looked at those responses from people in terms of loudness adjustment and then used that to inform the experiment, um, the listening test itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's loudness is a strange and tricky thing and far more complicated than than people think it is, um, and really
0: personal too. Man, loudness these days has gotten so fucking crazy. Like, I I remember back, fuck, like, in when when I was at uni, like, I don't even think we were using lofts back then. I think we were using RMS and like anything that was like louder than I don't know negative ten RMS, I'd be like, what the hell? But like now, it's I, I run everything on lofts and I don't put anything out that's like like ne- negative five loss minimum. It's like kind of where I you have a minimum music at. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, around, around negative five luffs is kind of a, about my my minimum. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I never for for, for various reasons. Uh, one, I like the sound of it. Like it's for, for the go. type of electronic music I'm I'm writing. Like a lot of that slammed, sort of clipped sound is, is 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 what makes it sound all gelled together, and what makes it sound like a big fat wall of sound um but also uh you know playing it out in clubs you know you're playing against other djs if you're doing a back-to-back with somebody else it's like you know they're going to play a file and their file is going to be whatever loudness and your file has to match that and but then you know you've got the streaming thing these days so i try to sometimes i'll do a separate master for that
2: yeah it's interesting i mean that that argument that it is the sound the the whatever negative word you want to come up with for limiting dynamic range that much and making it that loud again there are no rules around it and that is literally part of the sound you're trying to achieve so
0: right i mean at the end of the day to make that file negative 10 lofts i'd just be putting like a gain plug in on it and turning it down a bunch of decibels it's not
2: getting any more dynamic range
0: yeah exactly it's just getting quieter for whatever reason and then it's like your sausage just looks smaller Yeah. yeah
2: And there's a lot of those arguments around the sort of loudness wars. Years ago, was well, you know, users have a have a volume control; they can turn it up if they want. Well, they can't at, at your shows when you're mm. playing. The listener can't adjust anything,
0: right? And it's argu- arguable that on Spotify, they, I mean, they can, but a lot of people they just don't. A lot of people don't like. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at the statistics for how many people go into their Spotify preferences and turn, turn off, off. Uh, normalization, is it's probably ten percent of people if that. Yeah.
2: yeah Yeah, they don't want
0: most people are just they want that seamless transition of background wallpaper music that Mm. speaking of seamless transitions though in in spotify it's like a fucking better dj than me at this point it's like (laughs) they they have so they have so many data points like i I, the the amount of data that spotify must be hoarding at this point is fucking crazy but like I'll, i'll be sitting there listening to some shit and i'll be like wait what the hell did that just change song and i'll go look at it and then i'll be like yeah shit it did and I don't know if you've noticed this, but Spotify will be playing and like thirty seconds before one track ends, it'll start playing thirty seconds into the start of another track. No, I haven't and noticed. And it'll basically, yeah, exactly. It basically mixes tracks for you. It's like a, it's a, it's just, it, it just just DJs without you telling it to. Where it just used to be a crossfade, and now it's actually thinking about it. I don't know what it used to do, but but yeah, now it definitely is like actually doing some shit. Where I'm like, I'll I'll go back and. And listen to tracks before it, and be like, "Oh shit, that's actually like a yeah, that's an interesting mix. Like that that actually just f- found a thing that, that mixes really well with that." I might use that. It's useful. Yeah, it's it's. I I think Spotify is amazing for finding. I've found so much new music because of it. And I think um, I think the way that it used to work, uh, I think it's it's way more complicated now. But um, I think the way it used to work is, uh, it would just find a user that's very similar to you. And then it would just show you each other's likes. Oh. Um, and that's how it would suggest new music to you. I think it's more complicated than that now. But I always thought that that was really smart. Just find someone that's very similar to you and just goes like, you probably like this, you probably like this. It's basically like you're sitting in a room with someone on YouTube just being like, have you heard this? Have
2: you heard this? <laughs> yeah, find another person that has almost identical musical interests but rely on the fact that no two people have exactly the same musical interests and then share what's, yeah, share exactly. what's different.
0: Right. It's like kind of really smart.
2: Yeah. That's it's genius in how simple it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of programming is right. It's like solving a lot of those, those, those problems. But people over engineer shit so much. I, f- I feel like in, in a lot of code.
2: Do not look where well, you can't, but don't look behind the scenes in mine. I mean, mine's gotten better over time, but organization <laughs> is something trying to do from trying to stay uh, in my programming from day one and making it as simple as possible if i shared my software with you know with the world it would be refined and made more efficient in seconds a lot of it <laughs> isn't super super efficient but you know i'm not actually a programmer
0: have you watched those videos um of people opening up or old uh max patches there's a dude on youtube he's called like i think he's uh, I think his YouTube channel is actually just Dude or Dude397 or something like that. Um, and he's got a few videos where he opens up some of the old Ortec and Max patches <laughs> and they're just a mess of like signal processing and wires and just yeah. objects and shit. I've everywhere. seen a screenshot And he'll be like, ago. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'll be like, oh, we don't need all this anymore. And he'll just delete like a quarter of the patch and just put like one <laughs> object there that just does all of that shit. <laughs> yeah,
2: and now they've got the multi-channel the the updates to that software are just incredible it, it's maintained and expanded
0: you know by the day it's it's i can't say enough good things <laughs> about max it's owned by ableton now right or i mean at least i think ableton bought cycling 74 and that's how they got max into the max for live world yeah i think so the other the other great thing about
2: max that isn't actually about max is there's a facebook group for max and if you have a question or you don't know how to do something or you're stuck on a problem, you post it there and the problem is solved in six different ways in three minutes. Mm. It is the least... <laughs> it, and it has absolutely no off-topic posts whatsoever and no spam.
0: Mm. It's just like the stack overflow for Max MSP. Yeah, it's whatever. the
2: most professional social media group I've ever seen. Um, it's,
0: That's awesome. What is the group It's called? just
2: Maximus P on Facebook.
0: Oh, gotcha. I, oh, yeah, I think I'm a part of that one, actually.
2: The the posting yeah. things on there, I've posted a few questions around how to do things or I'm in mean, a jam, and the responses are literally minutes later and there's three mm. or four different ways to do it depending on what you want to do, which is, you know, that's max, right? You get two, t- two different people to add one and one together and you've got two different looking
0: patches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome where the state of the internet is these days. I remember... Um, back when I was at uni trying to ask people questions on the internet, it was like the best you had was those shitty fucking PHP forums. It was either like a, a bunch of sexist names like Gear Sluts or Muff Wiggler or some shit like that or, uh, or a bunch of other yeah. weird like Ableton PHP forum was one of them. Asking mine. a bunch of old dudes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're all basically like, oh, you're definitely going to want to buy this, this piece of hardware to solve your software problem. Yeah,
2: they should have had a forum called Black T-Shirt. That's what they should have had. With 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 dandruff on it and grey hairs on the shoulders, I think back back right. in those days when we when you were at SAE and people were writing to engineers like Sylvia Chevy Massey and um and and they'd reply because you know the world today everyone has you know you can look them up on Instagram or whatever the your ability to contact quote unquote famous engineers is really simple whether they reply to you or not is a different thing but you know mm. 12, 15 years ago they were quite surprised that you'd reach out and contact them and they weren't inundated at those stages with, in those times, sorry, with, with all the different contact requests and they'd reply to our students and were really generous with their time. Bob, Bob Ludwig, Bob Katz, all of those kind of famous old Mm. school engineers were happy to, you know, give advice to students because I think the requests were so few and far between, but now that they're so contactable, you know, they must get thousands of requests a day and
0: yeah, yeah, I, I actually added David Miles Huber to Facebook when I was at uni and I, I chatted with him for hours on there. It's wow. crazy. I was like, yeah, it was like the dude who basically wrote the book that we will mostly follow on Modern recording techniques, right? And he was just, yeah, he's exactly, yeah. He's happy to chat with me for all the time. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know much about this mp3 v0 thing i literally just saw a thing about it this morning i would never seen it before and i was like what the fuck is that And i was like maybe i'll ask mark about it no (laughs) okay yeah i guess it's like some different packaged up version of mp3 i guess like the the you had like the vbr cbr and now you have this v0 thing
2: Hmm. i don't know i will look into it or just listen to your next podcast
0: you can ask your next guest and hopefully they say yes oh yeah i know about that (laughs) Right. Yeah, who would know about that? Probably somebody who uses lime wire a lot or something.
2: Someone from the Fraunhofer Institute or something like that.
0: Right. Yep. Well, hey man, um thanks a lot for doing this. It was it was good chatting with you. Good to catch up and I, I appreciate you taking the yeah, time. Yeah, my pleasure.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Um we'll do it in another 10 years. Yeah. See what, see what happens. Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner note i may or may not do those last couple of things uh you should probably just go rate it on itunes or spotify or wh- whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast um but but just know that that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that so uh, just just put that out there